The drama continues on another scintillating episode of My Best Friend Satan. Last we met the friends. They had been skydiving and it's been a year since they've spoken. Let's listen in. Who's there? Let me in. Well? Well what? I haven't seen or heard from you in over a year, and I get so ass hurt that I actually show up to your door, and you have nothing to say to me? What is it exactly you expect me to say to you? What, are you mad at me or something? Did I do something? What in the home is your problem, Spidey? I thought we were best friends. You strapped me to your back and hurtled me through space in total terror for a full minute until the vacuum of space killed me, and then I woke up in bed completely traumatized. I've spent the last year in therapy because of you. Why do you think I would have anything to do with you ever again? Oh, that? You're upset about that? Boy, you're a bigger pussy than I thought you were, Spidey. Okay, you see? There it is. That's another thing. Why in the hell do you always call me Spidey? You know my name is Phil. Phil, not Spidey. My name is Phil. Yeah, I know. And what is your last name? Phil. That's irrelevant to the question, Bob. No, it's entirely relevant. Really? And how is that relevant? Because whenever I say your name, I can't help but start laughing. It's just too funny. I mean, seriously. What in my home were your parents thinking? Fuck you, Bob. <laughs> well, seriously, seriously, dude. My ass? Your last name is My Ass? <laughs> they could have named you something badass like Kiss or Suck On, but your dumbass parents named you Phil? Classic. That's it. Get out. Oh, my stomach is hurting. Okay, wait. Okay. Okay, okay. What can I possibly do to prove to you how sorry I am for terrorizing you like that? Sorry? Dude, you are the devil. Sorrow and empathy aren't exactly your thing. I know you think it's funny, and you'll just do something like that again, so I really don't want anything to do with you anymore. And, you know what, it's just great that you picked a nickname for me that makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, seriously, dude. Spidey? Why Spidey? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. I love Spider-Man, he's my favorite superhero, and he's so badass that I figured because your name and, in fact, your entire character are so weak and pathetic, I thought it was quite ironic and, and humorous, actually, to give you such a badass nickname like Spidey. Go to hell. Okay, fine. I will go home, but I will be back tomorrow, because we're going to fix this attitude problem you have with our friendship. The drama continues next time on My Best Friend Satan, Saturdays on TVS. Welcome to Scattering Podcast, episode 135. 135? This is like our non-Halloween Halloween episode, huh? Yeah, first time. I like it that way. It's fine. Yeah. You know, we already did. We already covered the priestly Halloween and all these different things last year. Yeah. We need to do something Halloween every year. Nah. I don't think we should do anything Christmas either. Screw it. Oh, I don't know. No no holidays. Let's do something else. Let's do something like Festivus. Or, um, uh, yeah, or pagan rituals or something. I don't know. Festivus. Wicca. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Fine. Uh, Atheist agnostic. Uh, festivals. <laughs> you wake Doesn't up and go, oh, another day? Yeah, pretty much. That's all pretty right. Much. What oh. do you, do? you yawn and go, I'm so glad there's no God. 
<laughs> left all the way to oblivion. <laughs> right. Yep. I can't wait till everything goes black and I don't know anything anymore because I'm just part of eternity. Yeah. Go back to my original state, you know. Yes. That's a weird thought. Hey, it's all it's all the same. That's a weird thought. It's like, uh, what was it? I think Bill Burr or someone said it. Like, uh, like, do you remember when JFK was killed? Well, no. That's what death is. <laughs> Everything before your memory is what death is. So, oh, okay. That makes it a little easier, actually. Yeah. Did you watch any Halloween movies or any horror stuff? Anything? We've been talking about it. You do? Did you watch anything? Have I uh, so far? Yeah, this year. Yeah. Uh, Chuck and I on Saturday night, we watched something on, I think it was on Prime or maybe Paramount, but it was called a Werewolf by Night. And it's an hour long thing done in black and white. And it was pretty fucking awesome, dude. It was really awesome. It was done like it was filmed kind of like um, old style, like sort of um, sort of way, the way it was directed and everything. And you know, like I said, it was all black and white. It was really cool. Though. Werewolf by Night. And it's a it's a whole different kind of take on a. Um, on a werewolf, like the, the, uh, you know, the way, the way the werewolf looked, looked pretty creepy and pretty good, but it was, it was just a different take and it was more about monsters than it was actually about the werewolf, but the werewolf is one of the monsters. So you just, you got to watch it. You'd probably like it. It's only like 55 minutes, something like that, but it was really good, Hmm. but that's it. That's it. I watched, uh, OG Dawn of the Dead. That was pretty fun. What do you mean? The black and white one from the sixties or the night of the living dead. Right, so it was 1978, Dawn of the Dead, when we're there in the mall. Yeah, the fucked up one, yeah. Yeah, I like that one. But it was a, it's interesting, I didn't know there were three different versions of it. Uh, I didn't know, actually, that it was hard to get. I tried to, I had to stream it on YouTube because you can't get it anywhere. I didn't know there was like a whole licensing thing that kept that from happening. And every now and then, I guess you can, they'll release a new version on DVD or whatever, some different cut or different um transfer from the film but yeah. dude, some of this stuff goes some of these like a blu-ray of it goes for 130 dollars on ebay yeah isn't that crazy crazy i was actually able to find a copy though on ebay on c on dvd for uh like 15 bucks so we'll see how that oh. we'll see if it's a good version it's the theatrical version uh, i guess there's a, a director's cut which is a little shorter i think or no a little what? longer it adds like 10 minutes i think and then there's a the uh dario is it dario argento the italian horror director i love his stuff i love his stuff yeah he was actually i guess involved in the dawn of the dead and so he got his own version i guess i guess the story the story i heard was that uh, george he invited george romero to come to his place in italy to work on the script for dawn of the dead and he let him stay there and i guess kind of give him some ideas and helped him sort of not flesh it out, but just someone to bounce ideas off of. And I guess he just wanted to be able to edit a version of it. So there's actually a third edit of that. And then I guess there's one that people, you know, the, the mega fans, they've taken all these different ones and made some mega mix of all three. You know, so it's got all the footage and the best parts and stuff. So we'll see oh, how this cool. one goes. It's supposedly a decent one, decent rip of it. So, or transfer of it. So we'll see. I, I watched uh, Hellraiser. I watched, um, as I said, the Halloween ends, that latest Halloween. And I guess I'm kind of running out of running out of time. It's Halloween here. Watch um, Suspiria. That's a Dario Argento movie. That's a good one. I've seen that one. Or, it's been a long time, yeah. though. I, was, I think I was in high school when I saw that one. Yeah, I watched those movies a lot. And um, 
Unsane, dude. Unsane is such a good movie. You mentioned that one before. Never seen yeah. that. And there was one called, I think it was called The Church, I believe. And that was, I think, the last one that he did that I saw. I don't know what he's done the last 20 years, though. I, I haven't really kept up. But, yeah, I used to love those movies. It was just a certain time. A certain eight, the 80s. Into the 90s. But really, the 80s seemed to be like the prime time for that horror genre. Yeah. Well, in Suspiria, I really love the soundtrack to Suspiria. It's done by that Italian band Goblin. Yeah, that's who does actually the the um the sound the music for Dawn of the Dead the theatrical release. Oh no shit! Yeah, oh, I didn't. Wow, oh, yeah, I, I I like that album though. The, the their album called you know the Suspiria soundtrack or whatever by Goblin. I've listened to that a bunch of times. It's a good album. But um, yeah. So uh, do you really think Halloween's really going to end? <laughs> Halloween the the series Halloween. Um, it's called uh, the end. Yeah. I think I think uh, Jamie Lee Curtis pretty much said she's not doing anymore until she like gets low on cash, you know. I don't know, man. She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. Yeah, she's fine. She's prolific and other. Well, rely only on the Halloween series to make money. True. I wonder when when she's going to do a true. uh, What was it? True Lies remake. True Lies. Or can you imagine that that movie sucked? (laughs) <laughs> you didn't like it i kind of liked it i like that movie uh i don't remember what i saw I, I saw it in the theater i don't remember really liking it very much i don't think i've seen it since then actually so maybe it's maybe i'd like it better now i don't think i, I was too into jamie lee curtis dancing in her black cocktail dress for arnold. i just remember tom arnold was actually surprisingly really good in that movie that's that's the most i remember from that movie and uh I think I think Bill Paxton was in that too, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Bill Paxton was a good actor, man. Yeah, weird how he died, man. Just going in for something kind of routine and fucking died on the table. Didn't even know what hit him, you know? Didn't oh, even know yeah. he doesn't even know he's dead. Isn't that a weird way to look at it? I guess so. Because he he expected to wake up, you know. I mean, can you imagine going in for a procedure or something and then Okay, see so when I wake up, and you, you just never wake up. You would just never know. That's kind you of... never know. Yeah, well, maybe that's where ghosts come from. He's haunting that that a hospital. Why aren't there? Super, why don't you ever hear about super haunted ha- hospitals? You'd figure there'd be ghosts everywhere there. There are. I mean, they have like you know YouTube clips and stuff of hospitals in India and South America and stuff all over the place that are supposedly haunted. CCTV footage of of you know wheelchairs moving by themselves, things like that. But all that stuff is like it could all be faked. It totally yeah, but could. this should be like it should be like every hospital's haunted. Every hospital should have the Ghostbuster on staff. You know, I mean, you figure a lot of people go in there and die, and not from maybe, good ways. Maybe they are haunted. Maybe they are haunted. Maybe the dead have the respect for the almost to be dead. Maybe, probably not. Who knows? Probably. It's not. probably. It's probably just too creepy of a place, or or bad memories, or like bad vibes, or like it was a bad place for them. Because that's where they died, or, or you know, that kind of thing. Why would they want to be there? Yeah, they want to be there. Oh, probably. Or yeah. ghosts don't exist, and we're all tripping. That's probably true. None of probably. it matters. No, nope, none of it matters, and it is all assimilation. So that's all that really matters, you know. You, you know, the, the I want to talk about the, that show, Wild Files. They had something now. Kent is like all embroiled in the Torah code and all that stuff. Oh yeah, and, and I know you that. and I. You and I think it's kind of like, you know, hocus pocus and not, you know, because if you can if you can do something in like Moby Dick or whatever and you can find patterns in Moby Dick to, to you know, like 
post post something happens you look for something you're going to find it right i mean and you're going to find like in some sort of code like a sequential code or, or number skip code or whatever it is you're going to find like someone's name and the day they died and all that kind of stuff in various different books and whatnot but um the thing is is that bible code or torah code if that's all real if there actually is stuff encoded in the bible that that has everybody on the planet or has ever lived their names, their date of birth, their date of death. It supposedly has all that stuff in there. Now, if all that is actually true, then that's even more proof that this is just all assimilation. Yeah. Cause all that, we, stuff we should, we like, should, we should uh, do a segment, uh, uh, episode on that one. We... No, no, let's just do that. And um, yeah, let's just do that. Cause it is kind of interesting as much as I think it's, it, it can be done in any book, you know, just from the stuff I've read and seen on documentaries and stuff. It's like they have people, researchers in other places using other books, and um, they actually found the same sort of things encoded in these books, like more than once, whereas in the Bible, it's just once. Right. So that would suggest that it's like no big deal. But there are it, it's also been peer reviewed, though, what um, what some researchers did in the 80s about the Bible code. And it was peer reviewed in some statistical magazine that it actually exists, which is really weird. The problem is, how do you actually do predictions, not post predictions, because you don't really know what you're looking for? You know what I mean? If you know what you're looking for, you can find the shit in there. But if you don't know what kind of catastrophes you're looking for or, or events to come, then there's no way to really know. There's no way to find it. You see what I'm saying? I agree with you. I mean, I think you can find anything you want in anything. My 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 po my point to that whole spiel was that if that is all actually true somehow, more proof of assimilation. And then when I watched like the post show of that Y-Files this guy was reading the guy who hosts the white house was reading um uh, an email from one of the fans and the fan goes yeah you know i was watching your episode on the simulation and i texted it to my brother because i said you're really going to like the show and he was dumbfounded because he just so happened to be watching the exact same episode on the simulation at the same time and i went oh there it is there it is <laughs> yeah the algorithm's pumping that one out which is part of the simulation it's all part of the simulation so let's um uh let's uh let's review this um this album that we picked, shall we? Yeah, so last week we tried something different. Uh we listened to an album that the other suggested and we didn't have necessarily the best results at least on your end of things. I thought it was pretty fun that we'll have to do that again sometime. I I'm going to need to give it some thought though to come up with something else that would be fitting for you to listen to with that same approach. Um, but we also did something different last week, which was we told the listeners ahead of time that we're, what we're going to be reviewing and giving them an opportunity to listen to it with us, if you will, and then see how their impressions of the album compare to ours. This album is called The Nine Choirs by Tribal Gaze. This album was released September 16th, 2022, nine tracks, 35 minutes, 30 seconds. For those that have never heard this band of this band, myself included, a week ago. These guys are a death metal band from Longview, Texas. They formed in 2020. This album, Nine, The Nine Choirs, is their debut, though they did release an EP in 2021 and then a split, which they looks like they probably just dropped a few tracks on it for something in 2022. But this album is their first one. And uh, oh, so they're brand new then. Yeah, much. they formed in 2020. Uh, these guys, like I said, are from Longview, Texas. The current members include... Zachary Denton on bass. He's original. Quentin Stouts. Uh, he's also an original member. He played drums from 2020 to 2021 and guitars from 2020 to present. So it's probably 
his band, one of these guys that was doing both, you know, he started probably recording and doing the drum parts and piecing it together. And then they eventually got their current drummer, Cesar De Los Santos. Uh, they also have Ian Kilmer on guitars. Oh, man, Ian must be like a what people name are named when they're going to be a ripping guitar player. Yeah, or or they have their name as or you know, kill or play. Oh, I know that. Did you notice that? Ian, Ian Kilmer, like Killmister? <laughs> I know, or, or play. There's plays as well, or like, or even Sean Killing. And Sean is just another uh, another name for Ian, just like Ian and John, Sean. It's yeah. all Interesting. the same name. So Sean yeah. Killian, right? Yeah. yeah. And then on, on vocals, they have McKenna Holland. So it's a five piece. Oh, okay, cool. Well, so we we discovered this thing when we were you, actually you had discovered them I guess and then we were sort of trying to decide what we were going to listen to, and uh, we gave just a little taste. Uh, we listened to the first track of this thing with a little intro, and then just a touch to see what it was going to be like, and we decided to listen to it. Yep, so, we waited. Uh, Dan was dying to just stop it or skip ahead, and and it takes a while for the vocals to kick in on that first song. I'm like, no, wait for the vocals. Wait for the vocals. I, I this is heavy, dude. Oh yeah, it's heavy as hell. It's got that slow, chunky thing going on, and I love it because I love when bands will do that—that that slow and like slogging thing—and then they got the blast beats in the back, you know. Uh huh. Very cool. Back and forth. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. Um, I notice. I notice this drummer does a lot of what I like to do and what I like to hear, which is, like you said, it, it'll it'll do something kind of slow and kind of kind of chunky and grinding and bouncy, and all of a sudden it'll be a completely different tempo, but the drums will speed up completely. So he'll do like triple time, but it'll be a different tempo anyway. And then it'll go back and forth, back and forth and four, four time, which is, um, you know, kind of obvious, I guess, but it sounds cool. I love that style. Yeah. Uh, this is pretty good, man. I mean, it's a kind of follow it's straightforward. It's not like uh super dynamic or anything like that. You know, there's a couple little leads in there that are, they sort of just follow it, you know, they fit in. You know where it's gonna go, but man, it's it's heavy. It's very heavy, and I like are, it a lot. I do too. But there are some kind of progressive parts in the middle that kind of threw me off a little bit. Like, what? Why do they do this? Like, you know, like really kind of, kind of dissonant and weird, and yeah, like progressive. And it just came off to me as like this weird sort of like, like extreme groove progressive thrash or something. I don't know. It was very strange because there's a lot of parts that are really kind of kind of like groove metal or something or like groove thrash or something and then it'll do the blast beats where it sounds like extreme metal and then it'll go into some progressive and it just there a couple times i felt like it was a little bit all over the place um and the groove metal the, the like slower parts of the album are my favorite parts for sure mm. i think anyone who likes a band like zabalba would like this they kind of they don't sound the same but they're kind of like in that same realm of of music to me yeah. yeah i looked these guys up uh tribal gaze on youtube and watched some of their live stuff i guess they they pretty much just had their first tour the stuff i saw was from september of 2020 so and they they said on, on the stage in a couple of the different videos i saw that it was their first tour so oh, they're cool. uh young guys from texas tearing does it up it, does it say who they're touring with uh, I didn't catch it. Either he mentioned it, I'm sure, but right. I, didn't, I didn't look. But well, yeah, I'm, big surprise, huh? Kick sure ass metal played, from Texas. I'm surprised they played like some small shows here and there locally, you know, before they even released anything, just to 
feel it out and get used to it. I, I would yeah, assume. Yeah, I'm sure that you know. He said tour, their first tour. I mean, they're going around out of Texas, maybe you know. So there's not really a throwaway on this thing. I mean, it's 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 kind of short at 35 minutes, uh, nine tracks, but it goes quick. I, I think yeah. it's like the right length for this type of music, for sure. Yep. Short Everyone. enough to not get bored, you know. Yep. Well, it, this isn't really. This isn't really. Th- I mean, it's. I guess it is thrash, but uh, it's. it's like, I'd call it death metal, man. The, the vocals and everything, and the really low tuned guitars and everything. I, I think it's more death metal-y. Like I said, they they kind of remind me in the same genre as Zabalba, even though they don't sound the same. I would like. I'd almost like to call them like something. You know, here's the labels again, but it it reminded me, for lack of a better way to like. To, to term it or to give anyone an idea it was like it was almost like like extreme groove or something you know because there were some parts of it that were pretty fucking pretty chunky and slow and groovy sounding you know and yeah, then it just yeah. breaking super fast you know yeah they'll do like like the obituary thing where it's the slow guitars with the fast drums in the back almost at like double time well that's that's a whole different story but i love that too anyway what do you yeah. give this well I really like this thing. I knew once we heard it that first, when we first listened to that little section that I was going to like it. Um, I think there's not a throwaway on this album. Like I said, it's a short, quick listen, but it's good. And so not super earth shattering or, you know, groundbreaking It is definitely follows the, the template, but I really like it a lot. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. I really like it. It was, uh, there were times where I found myself just with that, like almost like where you just envision that like nasty stink face, you know, when you get a badass riff and, uh, yeah, yeah just, it's awesome. It was, it was really good. Yeah. When I'm, when I'm listening to something, I start like banging my head involuntarily as a 53 year old, I have to give it a nine as well. Nice. Yep. Good album. Yeah. Good Did stuff, you have guys. any favorite tracks at all? I, you know, this sounds so like typical, but I really like, um, I really like the first song just because it's it's so good and chunky right off mm-hmm. the bat. Yeah. But there's a song, like I said, I don't have my notes right with me, but there's a song. I think it's the third song from the last, maybe. What is it called? Shapeless Sovereign. Uh, what's the next one? I, I'll know. Jungle what Rituals. Name. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. That song is fucking good, dude. Yeah, that was a good one. The one prior Shapeless Sovereign, I thought was very good too. They're all good. Yeah. Yeah, and again, 30, 35 and a half minutes, nine tracks. If you're into this yeah. music at all, you'll, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. And hopefully you listened already and you know what we're talking about. And you're, you're nodding your head in agreement with our stellar right. opinion. Right. Um, I think they bookended it right, too, because the, the first and the last song are kind of two of the better songs. So as far as like the editing or the, or the way the songs are arranged, they did a really good job. So that's important. Absolutely. We talked about that more than once that you order things and how it progresses and relates to each other and how they flow. That's that's almost as important as the the tracks themselves. What was that one overkill album from 2011 or 12? Was it Electric Rattlesnake or something? I forgot what it was called. That album just really underwhelmed me. And in one point, I, uh, for much, you know, overkill is kind of my favorite band, but I, at one point, I just decided I was going to rearrange the songs, like, you know, put it in, put them in a different order. And I did that a few times, different different ways, you know, and I found one way that made made it just so much more enjoyable. It's like, oh, well, if they did it this way, this actually would have been a pretty good album, you know. 
it's just they put the songs in a weird order that didn't make sense and it made the album just less you know so if you really have a good way of, of putting your albums or your songs together in the right order it makes all the difference in the world so we both gave it a nine this is uh tribal gaze um the band tribal gaze and what was the album nine choirs the nine choirs yeah once yeah. again uh released september 16th 2022 nine tracks 35 and a half minutes check it out yep Okay, so let's uh, move on to the part three that we put off last week, part three of the space race. And we are going to be talking about Werner von Braun, who was uh, kind of the head of NASA um, throughout the space race and was instrumental, actually, with the main guy that helped get men on the moon and, and the Apollo rockets and Apollo you know, Saturn V rockets, the Apollo missions. He was an ex-Nazi, and we're going to talk about that, too. Part three here of the space race. Why don't you get us up to speed, kind of a summary of where we're at at this point in time in the space race. We talked about the Sputnik program, uh, the Soviet Union. We pretty much started with the Soviet Union because uh, um, Korolev was the, the head of their space program, and he was kind of a one-man show, and it was very impressive the things he did. They would do... They would they would send things up. They would he would build missiles. He would design and and engineer and lead the, his team to to build these things. And without any sort of testing, dude, any sort of like pre testing, he would just send this shit up untested, and and it worked, which is unbelievable. Um, and he launched the first satellite into space, the first first animal into space, uh, um, the dog Laika, 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 and uh, the first man in space. Let's see the first spacewalk, the first woman in space, uh, just all kinds of firsts. And um, it kind of motivated or spurred the United States to to kind of leapfrog all that stuff and um, be the first people to get to the moon and land on the moon and get back to the moon safe from the moon to Earth safely. And uh, that was accomplished. So in a lot of people's eyes or in a lot of ways, it's almost like. Well, America won the space race because they, they got the big prize, which is going to the moon and back, right, with people. So that was huge. But um, the person who helped or or was instrumental, I should say, in designing and building the rocket, um, not just the engineering, but the, the orchestrating of his, of his team members and all the engineers and, and the uh, mechanics, everybody to get it built and get it tested. And they tested it and tested it and tested it. And they did it in so many different stages. And it was all because of Werner von Braun, who was a German rocket scientist who um, escaped from Germany as Germany, as the Nazis were collapsing. And the um, allies, you know, Russia and the United States and Britain were starting to surround Germany. He knew the end was near. And so he escaped uh, Penamunde, where his uh, where his lab was and um, with his team. And I believe they. Uh, they pretty much made their way to Switzerland and stayed in some hotel or something and just waiting for the Americans. They wanted to be captured by the Americans, not the Soviets. Cause yeah, the Soviets for obvious had, reasons. <laughs> Soviets wanted to basically take all the scientists, all the engineers, everybody from Germany, well, like we did, but they weren't necessarily good to their prisoners of war at all. Yeah. Um, they would murder them, put them in camps, let them starve to death. And they had a big grudge against uh, Germans in general. Uh, for kind of a good reason, because Germany attacked them and almost made it to Moscow and, and murdered so many of their people, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, they wanted to be captured. He wanted to he, he wanted himself and his team to be captured by the Americans and go to America and 
help the American space program or rocketry or engineering, whatever it was that we needed them for. Um, yeah, because he knew it would be a better life for him. And he was right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll set a let's start with his awesome name. Werner Magnus Maximilian Friar von Braun. It's a pretty good name. Wow. What a name. Yeah. He was born uh, March 23rd, 1912 and died at a pretty young age, 65, June 16th, 1977. He also he always had an interest in science. Yep. Um, from what I read, his family was pretty wealthy and he was really interested in space and astronomy. And when he was a kid, he got a telescope and that was kind of what sort of really got him going. And he was a big fan and uh, admirer of the um, uh, of the American, who was the really the first to pioneer, you know, trial and error kind of thing with small rockets, and and he would launch them from uh, from his farm, I believe, in New Mexico. I can't quite remember. Uh, Doctor Robert H. Goddard. It is Goddard. I thought it was Charles Goddard, but yeah, yeah Robert Robert Goddard, he, Hutchins Goddard. Yeah, he's considered he, the yeah. father of modern rocket propulsion. Yeah, and he he would build build and, and launch these things, you know, trial and error. He had a small team of, you know, friends and enthusiasts, I guess. And that's all he did, man. He was so obsessed with this whole thing. And, you know, he died before he could see any real advancement in it. But Werner von Braun was a huge fan of his and uh, kind of was uh, kind of stood on his shoulders as far as, you know, the knowledge that there was at the time that helped him build the V2 rockets uh, for Nazi Germany that helped pummel um France and and England, the latter stages of the war. That was him. He built them. Wow, it's amazing when you see some of this stuff. I mean, I'm looking at these pictures of uh, Dr. Goddard's first fuel, uh, liquid fueled rocket. This picture that I'm right. looking at is from March 16th, uh, 1926. Yeah, this is like made launching out of some little like wireframe, yeah, apparatus. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's would... even as tall as this guy is. You know. And they would they would like light these things and run like hell away yeah. from them, and get behind yeah. brick walls or go into a shed or something. So, because they would go up, they didn't know what direction they were going to go or where they're going to fall. So they had to like just haul ass to protect themselves. And it's kind of funny seeing the old clips of, of you know the film of that kind of stuff because it's like so just primitive, you know. Yeah. And they're just yeah. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the early days. Like you said, uh, Goddard was the first one, first one to do this. He launched the first liquid field rocket in 1926. Though he received patents for this in 1919. Trippy, huh? Cool. Yeah, patent for a uh, rocket using liquid fuel and then another patent for a two and two or three stage rocket using solid fuel. So, I mean, this is yeah. very primitive, but, you know, groundbreaking, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it laid the groundwork, of, you know, all the all the notes and all the experiments and everything he did saved like Werner von Braun and Korolev a whole lot of time, you know, because they, they could kind of jump ahead. Uh, based on what that guy figured out on his own for through trial and error for years and years and years and years, you know, but think, think about it. That's the 1920s. And then rockets are big enough and powerful enough to get out of the earth's atmosphere and get to the moon with people and, and come back, you know, the, the whole technology of it all, all happened within 40 years. Yeah. That's amazing. That's nuts, dude. That's talk about like rushing the whole thing, you know, and the, yeah. the fact that, you know, there was a lot of mistakes, obviously. A lot of people died, but the fact that it was successful in the end is pretty amazing. Okay, so maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I'm not sure if this is the direction you wanted to go, but I'll bring the question here. 
you know, some people, when you're talking about this, they, they say, oh, you know, aliens or extraterrestrials had to be involved because look at our relatively quick advancements in technology. But you just yeah. said it, there were a lot of disastrous failures, right? This wasn't super graceful. A lot of this stuff, especially at the beginning, was not super graceful. I mean, they're essentially ballistic missiles, right? Or ballistic rockets, I should say, just yeah. being hurtled up, hoping for the best, right? Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of um, believers or ufologists or researchers. There are quite a few, actually, who believe that, you know, the Roswell crash happened, which I, I actually do, too. But the, a lot of the technology we have and, and you know, and, and use today was from those captured, you know, advancements, you know, from that ship, you know, like, like fiber optics and things like that, you know, or like night vision, there's all kinds of different things that they think that we got that from the, from the aliens, from their, their crashed ships. And I, I personally, I think, that, I actually think a lot of this stuff was us, was humans. Yeah. Just trial and error, just trial and error ingenuity. I mean, and that's really, that's really kind of like, that's really kind of like, saying that humans aren't smart enough to do this kind of stuff in the first place, which is not correct, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could look at it and with, you know, without the information that we've mentioned here, you know, it could look that way. Oh, you know, these humans uh, advanced really quick, but that would discount all the other work that happened. Now, maybe, maybe more valid or uh, would be something more moderate, right? Like, okay, well, you know, humans, people, did their own thing this this very crude these very crude early implementations of these types of technologies but then that they were improved upon possibly or other things were used later right when did the roswell happen was that 50 was was 47 it was oh, 47. 47 okay right but there but there was um there was a colonel who actually was supposedly in charge of the um debris and the things that were in the spaceship and he held on to it and and like divided all this stuff out to different labs around the country, you know, like Bell Labs, this place, whatever, and said, I can't tell you where we got this. We don't know what it is or how to use it. But, you know, reverse reverse engineer this, figure out what it's about and then design something based on whatever this could be. Right. And that would be like, you know, like I said, like fiber, a piece of fiber optics. Um, there was something that was like like these lenses, apparently, that uh, could, could see in the dark. So that would be night vision, you know, and it go in or lasers. It was like a little pen, apparently, that they think might have been like a, a surgical instrument that shot a laser out of it that could cut through anything. And he gave that to a different lab and then they reverse engineered it for, you know, to become lasers and everything. I, I think that's I mean, it's a it's an intriguing idea and it's interesting, but I, I think that maybe that may be just someone's imagination, but it may not be. I don't know. But the guy's name was Philip J. Corso. He was Colonel Corso. And um, he wrote a book, uh, I believe in 1998 or 97, and it's called The Day After Roswell. And he goes through everything that he knows, every all the objects he had. You know, he knew he was about to die and everything. That's why he waited to the end of his life to publish the book. But it's a very intriguing book, and it's very believable. And it makes you come away kind of going, maybe that did happen. Maybe we did get this stuff from aliens in a way, right? Well, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I guess that's what I was saying, right? I mean, you look at this stuff with um, uh, the Werner von Braun stuff or the Goddard, Dr. Robert Goddard stuff, and you see this and maybe they were doing it. They would have, you know, that was going to be the natural course, right? But, but maybe things were helped along or maybe it was later things maybe it was fiber optics maybe it was the materials that were and the the 
the design of things that would help, you know, uh, make it difficult to detect by radar. Maybe there's it doesn't have to be all or nothing. For the record, Werner von Braun during his life, he was asked that that specific question about aliens helping us or, you know, some say we progress so fast, blah, blah, blah. You know, we couldn't have done it without the help of another species or whatever. And his response was, let's just say we had help. That's a little weird, dude, that von Braun would say that. Yeah, you know well, I mean? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you have, you know, I mean, this gets this is opens like a can of worms, right? Because we've glanced upon it before. But the Nazis were, you know, there's evidence that they were really interested in the occult and possibly even were using building saucer flying saucers and things like that, perhaps with help. I mean, who knows, right? That's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. Apparently there was a crash in Germany right before the war and they captured some technology as well and had help somehow. Um, I would think that if they had help from aliens, though, kind of directly, those are some evil fucking aliens, man. They wanted us to destroy ourselves or something because helping the Nazis to do the things they did is pretty fucking atrocious, you know. But anyway, that's a whole different subject. But um, Werner von Braun can't really sidestep the fact that he was not just a Nazi. He was he was uh, higher up in the SS, which was Hitler's personal bodyguards, right? They were the really highly trained, vicious part of the Nazi regime. And he was one of the one of the officers within the SS. He knew that his V-2 rockets were being built using slave labor and, and thousands, tens of thousands of people died in the process of building these things. And he was in charge of the whole project. So he knew he knew that he was using slaves and people were dying and didn't show any remorse throughout his life. After he was captured, came to the United States, you know, and throughout he never showed any sort of like personal uh, he never owned it. He never showed any remorse for it either. He never really talked about it. And um, there was a period in the 50s, I believe, where he he espouted the fact that he'd, you know, he'd become a Christian and brotherly love and love for other humans and this and that. But in, in the same breath, he never acknowledged his own part in the death of tens of thousands of people, which was fact. And that's a little bit disturbing, you know, that we could the United States government could look away just to use someone for their knowledge of technology and engineering. Well, when you look at the context of it, you know, the the competition and the, the fear against and, you know, of the Soviet Union at the time, I mean, it's almost like win at no costs. You definitely saw that with the Soviets, right? They were, hey, we, we haven't tried this thing. We're going to launch someone in, into space anyways, you know? I'll give it a shot. Sure. The justification, too, for the United States government was that the Nazis hated the Soviets and didn't trust them, and we didn't either. So you're, you know, the the what is it? The the friend enemy, of the the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or something like that. Exactly. And that's I think that's exactly how they looked at it. So you know, morals be damned. They never, you know, they never they were never punished for any of their crimes. Whereas all the other, most of the other Nazi leaders who didn't escape were hanged or put in jail. You know, so. He never received any sort of punishment that he was kind of due um, because of his knowledge of rocketry and, and his engineering skills. You know, so it was the better of two evils, I guess. You know, well, we can use him. What? Well, why would we want to kill him if we can use him against our adversary? Right. Well, I mean, that, that whole discussion starts talking about Operation Paperclip. Yep. It wasn't just That's him right. that was that was uh, recruited. I mean, it was 1,500, 1,600 people, engineers, scientists, technicians. Yep that were recruited from the former 
Nazi regime. Yeah. It's crazy, huh? Yeah. And they all, they all had direct knowledge of what was going on and what it took to build those things. You know, you need labor to actually physically build these rockets. They weren't doing that. And they were having slaves do it, basically. Yeah. People in prison, Jews and gypsies and whatnot. And they were dying left and right. And, you know, that's that's one of the only weapons in history, the V-2 rocket, that actually killed more people on the side of the you know on the side of the the people who built the weapon right it killed more people on their side than it did actually their enemy so all these tens of thousands of people died building this thing and it would be launched you know launched into like paris or or into england or whatever into london and it may kill you know a couple dozen people you know i don't know how many total maybe 1500 total people were killed by that those rockets you know but tens of thousands died building that shit on their side you know so yeah. it was in that respect even though it was the first object ever to actually make it into space in that respect as a weapon it was a failure you know but again apparently he always had his eye or so he said he always had his eye toward putting man in space that was his ultimate goal and so for him it was like it was like a necessary evil i think you know to to use these slaves and not speak out against the Nazis and to use whatever he was given by the Nazis, you know, all, all these different, you know, Penamunda, his labs, all the researchers, you know, all the equipment, everything that he had was given to him by the Nazis to do his work. But I guess it was all for the betterment of mankind, getting man in space, right? So the tens of thousands of slaves didn't die in vain, I guess, you know, but it's yeah. still pretty. I mean, it sounds like the quote I read, um, from his signed affidavit to the U S was basically that it was, yeah, she work with us or you don't work. You know, his That's quote right. is here. He says, um, in 1939, I was officially demanded to join the national socialist party. At this time, I was already technical director at the army rocket center, um, at Penemund in the Baltic sea, the technical work carried out there had in the meantime, attracted more and more attention in higher levels. Thus, my refusal to join the party would have meant that I would have had to abandon the work of my life. Therefore, I decided to join. My membership in the party did not involve any political activity. So he was, he was trying to sidestep it. You know, they they demanded I, I work for them. And I wanted to do this. This is my, my passion. And this is where I needed to go. And I would have had to give up my passion. But don't worry. I didn't, I was, it wasn't a political thing for me. That's what but he, he had to... He had to kind of look away or pretend it didn't exist because yeah. he was the he was the director of that stuff and he knew that slaves were being used that that prisoners were being used to build this stuff and were dying by the scores doing this so he, I guess he couldn't speak out or he he would get fired or maybe worse you know in a in a 1952 memoir he admitted that he fed relatively well and yet he you know disparaged Hitler as a basically a douche a fool yeah and called him as another napoleon <laughs> Not man who thought himself the only god so i don't know if that was i don't know man it's like where do you draw that line between oh my scientific pursuits and it's in the greater good you know i guess which you know having to weigh the scales and which way did the scales fall but i mean okay i put it this way if if I knew that people were being imprisoned, abused, murdered, executed, worked to death, uh, it wouldn't matter. For me personally, I would find a way to escape Germany and not be a part of that shit. But that's yeah. me. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying. He tries to sidestep it or cop, cop out. Yeah. 
he tries to justify it. He just looks away. So, but and that's another thing is he never seems like personally tormented ever in in his his demeanor. You know, in the things he says, he never seems like he really owns any of it or feels particularly bad about it, which is really kind of strange. You know, you'd think someone who has empathy for other humans would just feel absolutely well, wouldn't get that, wouldn't be in that position in the first place, but you know, would at least feel fucking horrible about that shit, you know? Yeah. But, but not, I mean, again, it was justifying it to whatever degree that is. Again, I don't know how the guy thought. Maybe he believed all of it and was just, copying out but yeah like well, you said you'd figure out a way maybe to not do that but then he comes over here and he's reaching other high positions of power and has a goes on to have another complete career yeah yeah and he's he was in his lifetime in the united states he was he was idolized i mean american public loved him they they just absolutely loved him he was a celebrity as well you know he he did those things for walt disney on on tv in the 50s pushing his ideas for, for a space program and reaching Mars. And uh, it was really well thought out. Well, obviously, you know, he had, he had his own spaceship thought out and everything and designed and, and the way to do it was all thought out. And Walt Disney was into it too. So he helped him with the slick production, you know, and, but <clears throat> the United States didn't really want to use him for any of these things uh, for the first 10 years that he was here because, because of his past and because, Americans did want to keep it in-house, you know, the things that were being, you know, that were being done uh, as far as rockets and missiles and things like that. They did want to keep it in-house, but the stuff that was done kind of, quote unquote, in-house, you know, in America by Americans was pretty substandard uh, and failed, you know, and that's yeah. when they pulled that's when they pulled Von Braun out with his design, his ideas and his rocket was was given the go ahead and it succeeded. Yeah, President Truman actually recalled later on that he said he, you know, despite, you know, thinking about it for almost a year and a half, he said he was not the least resistant or reluctant to approve Operation Paperclip because, as we said before, because of the whole situation with the Soviet Union, as this had this quote had to be done, and so it was done, and it was done. So yeah, yeah, and if we to. didn't. Take if we didn't take them, the Soviets would have everybody. Because yeah. they, they, well, yeah, they the Soviets took uh, thousands of people as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, six thousand, yeah, more than six thousand people, including family members. So yeah, coming in yeah, and so, swooping them up, or taking yep. them. You're coming with us. I guess. I guess Ron Braun and his team were kind of just just languished in uh, Texas and kind of a not really a detention center, but they they weren't allowed to like travel around the United States or anything. They're pretty much stuck for. I believe about 10 years, uh, he, he and his team just kind of waiting for the opportunity, you know, with their designs and everything. So that must have been a boring 10 years. What are some of his greatest accomplishments then? I mean, he was definitely instrumental in getting the U.S. where they were and to the, in the space race. What were some of his top achievements? I mean, he eventually ended up working for NASA. He's the one. He's the one when JFK was all distraught about the Soviets putting the first satellite and then, then the first man into space. He was asked by Kennedy, you know, what can we possibly do to get ahead of these guys? And he was the one who told Kennedy uh, we could land a man on the moon and get him back you know, within 10 years. Right. And that's when Kennedy made the speech about, you know, we're going to achieve landing a man on the moon and getting back safely to Earth, you know, by the end of the decade, blah, 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 blah. And then once he was assassinated, that motivated everyone to really actually get going on this you know and the fact that he made that speech before 
before America even had their first American in space. It's crazy. No, it was right after um, Alan Shepard had 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 done the first suborbital um, mission. You know, so one guy wasn't even fully in space, but the first guy right after that, Kennedy states that we're going to go to the moon and back before the end of the decade. And apparently all the engineers and, and people in NASA were just like, this is insane. There's no way we can do this, you know, but it was done once he was assassinated. Everyone was super motivated to do it in memory of him, you know, and to beat the Soviets. It's amazing. It must have been. A, I mean, I, I think that every point in history, every point in time has their own trials and and interesting things. But when you go back and read about this kind of thing, it's very interesting to think about how someone could go from being part of the Nazi regime to being one of the heads of, of NASA and all, all because of the advantage that those associations would give them, despite any other previous associations, you know, it's kind of yeah, a I'm not, interesting yeah, I'm thing. Not, I'm not sure we could have made it to the moon and back by the end of the decade without the guy though, too, because he just had this stuff all worked out. He had all the knowledge, um, you know, and doing it in steps was genius. You know, you start with the mercury, um, the Mercury missions, and then you graduate to a you know two-man capsule with the uh, Gemini missions, and then you graduate to the Apollo missions with that huge friggin' Saturn V rocket, you know, and then you go through all of the you know step by step, you know, you you first you do an on you do a, a lights out a plugs out plugs out test on the launch pad, you know, and that was Apollo one. That one caught fire and killed all three astronauts, which was a total tragedy, and it set back the program like a year and a half or something because they had to completely redesign. The lunar capsule because there were so many like loose wires and frays and shorts and it was just so poorly designed and that it killed those people on the pad right just when they're just sitting there like doing a lights out test where they pressurize the capsule and they're they're trying to communicate in between buildings and gus grissom at one point before they before they all burned to death um was saying you know oh jesus christ how are we supposed to get to the moon if we can't even communicate between two buildings right and then the fire started. That was a big setback. But but the way the way he organized it to do it in steps, you know, then you then you go up and you like you release the limb, the lunar module in Earth orbit and fly it around a little bit and then redock it with the spacecraft to make sure that part works. Then you land. Then, you know, Apollo 8. Let's just, you know, they saw a CIA saw a huge rocket and that would be the N1 rocket for the Soviets. They saw a huge rocket on the launch pad and got scared. The, the Soviets were about to launch a mission to the moon and beat beat the United States again to the moon. And the Soviets went to NASA and told them, you know, there's a big there's a big rocket on the launch pad in the Soviet Union. You know, we need to jump on this. And last minute, NASA decides for Apollo 8, you guys are all going to the moon and back. You're going to go to the moon, orbit the moon and come back. And all three of the astronauts were like, uh, OK, you know, they, they had no choice, really. I mean, they could have copped out, but they were determined and committed as well. But um, they all said they gave themselves a 50-50 chance that it would even succeed because they all felt it was rushed. And the wives of the astronauts were all like saying, this is insane. This is insane. This isn't going to work. You need more testing, right? But they just said, fuck it. They're about to launch a rocket, so we're going first. And that's what Apollo 8 did in 1968, was orbited the moon and then came back. You know, that was that whole Christmas orbit, you know, where they read the, you know, read parts from the bible as the as the earth came up over the horizon of the moon you know humans with their own eyeballs saw the dark the backside of the moon for the first time uh came back and it was a success and that really that really that fear that, that we we're going to be beaten again is what really gave everyone the guts to just let's just do this let's just go now 
no more testing. We've done a bunch of tests with all these other Apollo missions. We're just going. And then they did that moonshot in 1968. And, and then he's up to Apollo 11. And, you know, it, I didn't realize till later in life that uh, not only the, were people going to the moon before the landings even happened, right? Because you had the two in Apollo 8. Then Apollo 9 uh, tested the limb, I believe, in Earth orbit to make sure that worked. Then they shot another crew to the moon. They did like the dry run where they orbited and they went actually went down to the moon in the in the lunar module and and acted like they were going to land and then instead went back up to the um to the main capsule redocked and then came back to earth just to see if they could get that far before they even did the the full mission to land the the uh, lunar module isn't that a trip yeah i think uh you see different approaches but it seems like von brun was actually a little cautious when it came to that when it came to his endeavors here at, at nasa yeah he was very cautious he wanted everything to work he, he had a good run there. I mean, he he was a uh, director of one of their what was it the uh, Marshall Center? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he was there for basically ten years until he retired. Uh, and at the end of his life, he was very disappointed um, at the cancellation of the last three Apollo missions to the moon. And he felt that we should have done those missions and then just continued forward into um, the planned. Uh, Mars mission, which was, I believe was planned. He had it all planned out to continue on with the Apollo missions and then work up uh, to going to Mars and back. And then I believe the Mars landing with humans and everything. I think he had it scheduled for like 1984 or something. So at the end of his life, he was very distraught and disappointed at the direction of NASA um, and the fact that, you know, we just kind of canceled everything and focused on a space shuttle instead. And he thought that was a mistake, you know, and in some ways he was right, but it was all about politics. So once he left, once he left NASA, uh, he became vice president for engineering and development at Fairchild Industries, They're an aerospace company. A little bit later, a couple years later, he was diagnosed with kidney cancer. Yeah, this is kind of young. What, 65, you said? Yeah. yeah. That sucks. Werner von Braun, dude, he was a genius, and he was instrumental in us getting to the moon. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I don't know how much I admire him for that based on his past, but some people are more driven than others, I guess. So. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to justify it because as you said, you know, if you knew that thousands of people were dying as, as a result of your work, it maybe extricate yourself if you could. But I mean, we weren't, we're not him, you know, we were not him. So we wouldn't know that the true dynamics of it, you know, you can't apologize for things that you do necessarily or always justify them, but we don't know. And if you're a man who's driven by your career, you know, yeah. some people are so driven that they'll do whatever it takes. We've seen that in many other industries. Industries that exist to this day. So people... real quick before we wrap up, do you, clearly there are things that are horrendous. Um, do you think that, I mean, clearly Von Braun justified his associations with the Nazis and his activities and things. He, you know, he, he justified them to himself and, as you said, didn't really feel any guilt towards it. But do you think like that ultimately the recruitment of these individuals by the U.S. government, aside from the race to space against the Soviets, I mean, how far do you go before you say, okay, we can't justify this? Like, like, should we have actually taken those guys for the project uh, Operation Paperclip? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, thing was that a good call? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at. I guess 
I guess in light of your adversary and how aggressive they seem to kind of conquer the world, make the whole world socialist, and the fact that the, the Nazis were very anti, obviously anti-Soviet, and it would have been a it would have been beneficial for our military to have these guys, you know, their knowledge and skills and whatnot. That's a hard call, dude. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, so I, where do you think, I think we'd be now if we didn't, let's say, let's say right we didn't call. have Von Braun's help. I'm saying maybe it was the right call. Okay. That's it. Yeah. I where do you I, think I, it would be? Where do you think things would be now if we didn't have that benefit of, of his knowledge and experience at that time? I mean, we would have eventually gotten to the moon probably, but probably not. Probably not first because the Soviets would have snagged Von Ron. Yeah, no, I'm not saying first, but where do you, I mean, when do you think that, how far be, forward did that help us, I guess? How far did that help us out? Do you think a decade? Oh, I think, that, oh, I think that, that set us forward at least 50 years, at least, by having wow. him, you know, his engineering and knowledge. Wow. Maybe more, I don't know. That's a very hypothetical thing, you know, to think about, but I would say at least 50 years. And it's, it, you know, it is really weird that that um, just in the last like 70 or 80 years, all of the different technologies that have come through and come out and, and they're now like at market, you know, and, and that we buy like things like lasers and fiber optics, that's all common, you know, or microchips, that's all common stuff now, you know, and that's all been developed over the last like 60 or 70 years. That's yeah. insane. So either we did have help or humans really aren't that stupid, but it's amazing it's amazing they went thousands of years, you know, slowly developing, incrementally. Took so much time to figure out just fire, you know, or the wheel. And then just in the last century, we've advanced so much. It's pretty interesting. Maybe it's just that whole Moore's Law thing, you know, how everything accelerates every 18 months. Yeah, everything. What is every 18 months? Every, every 18 months, technology doubles, right? And that was since the, the beginning of the microchip. That scientists... yeah, I think they're talking about the number of the the transistors on it or something like that doubles. But right. yeah, yeah. every eighteen months, and and it's been true. He's he was right. It's been happening that way. So maybe it's kind of that way as far as just basic human technology and advancement. You know, every, you know, it, it's compounded. It's like compounded advancement. snowball effect. Kind of, yeah, yeah. It's like it slowly works up, but then when it starts to really pick up and you start getting more and more advancements that opens the door for another advancement another event yeah and it just snowballs totally it could be just that simple really i mean not that it's simple but or it's aliens hopefully it's aliens <laughs> <laughs> all right let's wrap this up okay man so uh a very interesting conversation you get into some you know interesting moral questions but it is very interesting to see and look back at history and the dynamics that shaped those types of choices that were made by the powers that be. Um, either way, these are great accomplishments in the scope of human history. And it's interesting to learn about. All right, dude. We good? Yeah, I think we're good. Thanks for listening, everyone.